All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome online. If you're joining us there, turn to Jonah chapter 2. We're going to continue our series. And before we dive in to Jonah, I'll just echo uh, what Katie said about Thanksgiving. It's my absolute favorite service of the year. I hope you all can come. It's just 45 minutes. And um, we, we did this when I was in California um, every year. And um, it's my favorite service. I get emotional just hearing what people are thankful for. It's a very touching, amazing way to start the Thanksgiving uh, morning. So I hope you join us for that. And then the Sunday after that, uh, so that, well, Thanksgiving Thursday, that Sunday we'll be receiving our harvest offering. Um, and if you, if you remember, a harvest offering is the one special offering that we receive each year where none of it stays in-house, 100% of it goes out goes out into the community. It helps uh, missions globally. It helps them nationally, internationally. We are able to help people in our community. We were able to help train uh, young leaders and send them to places where they can learn to grow in their leadership and, and then in turn start training and encouraging and growing other leaders. It's just an incredible blessing that we get to have to be able to give out. And one of the things that I ask us to do when we pray about the harvest offering is understand that this, this offering is never something that we do in lieu of our, our normal tithe. Uh, the harvest offering is something we receive where we say, I'm going to give up something sacrificially. I'm going to give up eating out for a couple weeks. I'm going to give up coffee for, for a few weeks. Ah, it's scary, right? But, but I would say, hey, I'm going to take something out of my normal routine, and I'm going to give it so we can then be a blessing to people around us. And in the past couple years that we've done this, we've given upwards of $30,000 out because of this offering. And it's so, so fun to see what God does um, through this offering. So pray for that as we get closer to receiving that the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Now, quick question, who already has Christmas stuff up in their house? Nobody? Oh, we got one. So don't, you own it. You own it. You were Christmas at Trunk or Treat. And on that note, on that note, Gina, uh, I didn't announce it last week, your car was voted the, the, fav, the fan favorite car at Trunk or Treat. If you saw it, it was Santa, Mrs. Claus, the Grinch was there. So thank you so much for doing that. But... Um, I started blasting Halloween music, and she turned her Christmas music up because the speakers were right there. But, um, but that, was, that was super fun, so I'm not surprised that you already have Christmas stuff up. But Christmas, I mean, you know, there's no shame in all the Christmas stuff, you know, having it out, right? Whether you like it or not, Mariah Carey is now thawed out. Wow. The song is happening. It's everywhere. We've got a couple months of it before she disappears into the sea until next year. But I do love Christmas, but I love Thanksgiving. I love not just the food, but I love um, just the, the season where people, it it's, becomes the intentional time to take out, to talk about what are you thankful for. And so I love this season, and I love reading coming up into this service. But in Jonah chapter 2, we're going to see Jonah in a place that he probably is not very thankful for in the moment. Where we ended last week, we, we see that Jonah was in the belly of a whale or a great fish. Um, but before we dive in, I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to open up with a different story that I think relates to Jonah in a pretty, pretty awesome way. So let's pray this morning. God, thank you so much for today. I thank you that we get to come together. God, we get, to, we get to celebrate you. We get to hear from you. And God, I pray that today, more than anything, more, more than any person is seen or felt, you are seen and felt, God. That our lives are changed, our lives are touched. And God, we're, just in, we're inspired, encouraged, and convicted uh, to live for you stronger um, when we leave this place. We thank you, love, and everybody said... Amen. So my, my dad would tell us this story when we were younger, and it's one of my favorite stories of what my dad did to torture his sister when he was younger. If you have siblings, you know there's siblings that fight stuff. My dad would tell the story. said that uh, they would go on a camping trip, and they would go camping in Oregon, same place actually that he took us growing up camping. But my dad 
had a younger sister. He had two older sisters and a younger sister, and he would constantly torture his younger sister, right? Boys, youth in here, if you have younger sisters, torture the younger sister. Jordan, I can count on you for that, absolutely. You torture the younger sisters, right? So he, in this camping trip, he decided to take my Aunt Terry, he took her shoe, and he threw it into the river. Yeah, <gasps> there goes the shoe. So my aunt is screaming at him. My grandma, who we call Mima, Mima started chasing my dad. My dad knew he could outrun her. <laughs> knew it, so he did. And he would run, and he would dodge, and she'd get close, and he'd zip the other direction. And this went on for a long time. And he would just play this game where, of course, she was not playing a game. But he was so adamant, she will never catch him until he's running. And he described, he goes, he was running, and he looked behind him, and then he met the tree. <laughs> Full on met the tree. He went down, collapsed, and hurt. And then grandma caught up to him. His mom caught up to him. And then the real pain happened. And the real consequence came. She did not care that he hit the tree. She, he was still in trouble, and he knew it. Not only did he have to face his mother, but then she had to go take him to talk to his father. And my grandpa, his name was Mel. He was a pastor in Open Bible for, for many, many years before he passed away a number of years ago. But um, he was a very much no-nonsense guy. There was the truth. There was not the truth. And if you disagreed with him, he would say, we can disagree. Or we can agree that you're wrong, but there's no point in both of us being wrong. And that was just kind of how his mantra was. So my, he then had to face, my dad had to face my papa. And the moral of the story is, no matter what happens, you can't outrun the father. Papa wasn't even the one chasing him, but my dad got brought to him. You can't outrun the father. In our current series, we've been talking about God of the second chance. And we've been using Jonah as our narrative, talking about how God gives a second chance, specifically to Jonah and then eventually the people of Nineveh here. And we've been learning what it's like for Jonah now to live this life on the run. He's been on the run. He's been resisting. He has been saying, God, I want nothing to do with what you've called me to do. And last week, a big point we talked about was this. Every one of us matter to God. Every single one of us matter to God. We went through a whole list of categories of people that you may or may not agree with, and we said every one matters to God. But even when we run or resist him, even when we're running and saying, I want nothing to do with you, you still matter because God has this pursuing love that will chase you down. We have a heavenly father who you cannot outrun, and that is a really good thing. That's a really good thing that God doesn't take breaks from this. Now, now we all understand the effective power of discipline in someone's life, right? And, and parents, we understand this. You know, we understand why we discipline kids. Kids, you may not understand it now, but someday you will. We have to discipline. Dis discipline brings us an understanding of right, brings us an understanding of wrong, lets us, lets us know that there are consequences for decisions, and, and we want our kids, ultimately, to make the right decision. We want our kids to grow up making wise decisions, to understand the right from the wrong and what happens when you do something good, what happens when you do something bad. And so we, we effectively discipline our parents. That's why we have rules. Now, have you ever met someone in your life and you knew this person was never disciplined? You come across those people, right? You know, it's like, oh, you weren't, there was no consequences in your life as a child. There's probably no consequences in your life now. Sometimes it can come out really, really fast. But there's, there's the effective thing we do in our house and I know that millions of households around the world do this, we give our kids timeouts. We give our kids timeouts. As a matter of fact, I was, on, um, I was on a field trip with Aurora's class, and there were two kids that were yelling at the CEO of a business, and I was the parent chaperone, and I put two sixth graders on timeout. It was pretty awesome. 
I took a picture of it and sent it to the teacher. They're in the timeout corner. There they are in the middle of a field trip on a project, and there's two kids just standing in the corner. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty awesome. They, they wrote thank you notes, and they put, thank you for putting us on timeout. It was really fun. I was like, well, I was hoping you'd learn something, but, you know, timeout. But in our house, we had a timeout stool, and it was all painted, and, it, you know, fun, fancy lettering, the timeout stool. And the kids saw it. They were like, hey, that's cool. We're like, yeah, it's a timeout stool. <gasps> oh. Because then they knew that the only time they're ever going to sit in the stool was when? When they're busted, right? They're on timeout. And in our house, we learned that if you put one of our girls on timeout, that was a death sentence. The world stopped. The world collapsed. Everything was wrong because it was just a horrible thing to be put on timeout, especially for two extroverted kids to tell them you will sit in the corner and have no interaction with anybody or anything for five minutes end of the world. And I think for us, we actually did. When they were two, it was two minutes. When they were three, it was three minutes. But still, it was an eternity in the timeout corner. Now, we can appreciate, even as adults, timeout sometimes, right? Timeout to be by yourself, to, to say, all right, I've got to evaluate what's going on. But when it comes to, to child rearing and oversight and, and discipline, what is the purpose of a timeout? Like when you think, I'm going to put my kid on timeout, what are some things that we hope to accomplish with someone being put on timeout? And I, I, I have these four things. One, I give our kids a timeout because it gives the child the time to reflect on their behavior and learn from it. Give them time to reflect and learn. Two would be a desire for the child to change, get, get headed back on the right path. Give them time to stop and think about this. Three, I, I would use a timeout for a child's character to be formed and shaped for some of their life. And four, for any relational breach to have that relationship restored. These, these are all the things, and maybe I'm shooting really for the stars here, but I know that when we think of timeouts, I think these are things that I would love to happen on a timeout. Now, hopefully, we just get them to be quiet for those two or three minutes, right? Sit down and be quiet. But in the ideal world, these things would happen. Now, most are familiar with, with a lot of these principles, and in chapter two, I believe we see God and Jonah. Jonah is on this epic timeout. He has nowhere to go. He's isolated in the belly of a fish. And I think we're going to see all four of these things happen with Jonah in these few days that he's with the fish. So chapter one saw Jonah literally drowning in his consequences, right? The consequence of, of what he needed to do. He needed to turn his life around to follow God, but he was running and resisting. He decided, I'm going to give up my prophet's badge for a one-way ticket to Spain. I am out of here. So God gives him this amazing timeout. Three nights, three days, in the stomach of a large fish. If you think sitting in a corner facing the wall for five minutes is bad, think of this timeout, right? Literally, you'd think it's over. But th this timeout was, was orchestrated by the sovereign God who sees the overarching picture of what Jonah needs to turn back to him, right? So God has this orchestrated for Jonah to sit down, and he has this fix for him. He says, all right, Jonah, there's a fix you need, and I'm going to fix you. And there's a fun phrase I heard someone say. It said, God will fix a fix to fix you that you can't fix. God will fix a fix to fix you that you can't fix. Ultimately, he'll do that because he is God. He is God, and we are not. He knows how to fix. He knows how to orchestrate where we will not know how to do these things. And I think God can get a lot of bad press sometimes when, when things happen in the world. But understanding that we're under his authority and his leadership and ultimately his love is the greatest place to be. And that's what Jonah's timeout is really all about. Jonah's timeout is showing that God is at work 
to fix Jonah in a way that Jonah could not fix himself. In chapter 1, we saw that, that Jonah was protesting, but we also see God's patience. In chapter 2, we're going to see Jonah praying, and as Jonah prays, we're going to see God pardoning. So if you have your Bibles open to Jonah chapter 2, we're going to read this uh, whole chapter together, and we're going to get some lessons from you. So Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings and mountains. The moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever, yet you have brought me up from my, my life from the pit. O oh Lord, my God, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. With those, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pray what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That's a great picture image right there, right? The fish vomited him onto dry land. Now, this, it says there was, he prepared a great fish. The Hebrew word used here is actually dag, D-A-G. And that means creature, great fish, or whale is how it's translated today. And th this can be difficult to comprehend for some people. Like how in the world could a fish, a whale, how could this swallow a person? As a matter of fact, um, I've shared before that uh, last year, I read through the Bible in a year, and I got to talk to one of my siblings who does not really believe in God, but it was the first time in a long time, you know, he was open to hearing about it. And one of the conversations we actually had, he said, you know where I draw the line in the Bible, Dustin? It's like, where? He goes, Jonah. I'm a man of science, my brother would say. You cannot swallow, a fish cannot swallow a person. It cannot, that cannot happen. Science says it's wrong. So for me, that just shows it's not real. And I'm like, all right. So you're telling me that people raising from the dead, water into wine, blind men seeing, people who are crippled walking, like that's all, I can see that, but a fish swallowing a guy, you draw the line at the fish swallowing a guy. And it was like, yeah. It's like, all right, well, I talked to him about this, but I'm gonna show you guys this. There's records. There are at least three historical records we have today of people getting swallowed by a big fish. Four if you count Jonah. So, so let me show you this picture. Meet Michael Packard. Michael Packard, here he is giving a thumbs up after being swallowed whole by a humpback whale in Cape Cod in 2021. Yeah, his, his sister witnessed the whole thing while her brother was lobster diving. She describes that she was on the boat, she saw the whale come up and go down, and her brother was gone. As he describes it, he describes seeing the whale coming and then realizing after a big swallow, I am inside the whale. I am inside the whale as he was getting thrashed around. He was not in the whale for very long, but it did come and spew him back out. She was still in the boat and saw her brother get spewed out by the whale where he was able to be recovered with minor injuries. Crazy, right? Another story 150 years ago, I don't have pictures of the next two, but 150 years ago, there's another man by the name of Peleg Nye who was swallowed whole by a sperm whale also in Cape Cod. Moral of the story, don't go swim in Cape Cod. <laughs> Stay out, all right? Now, there's even a, a book about this called Peleg Nye, the Jonah of Cape Cod, published in 2015. Now, the difference is, whereas 
Michael was lobstering. Peleg was hunting this whale. The whale decided it had enough, turned around and swallowed him. He also survived. I think it says, if you read the book, it says he had a broken leg when he was, when he was regurgitated. But he survived, hopefully never hunting whales again. Now, there's also a man in 1891, James Bartley. I believe this one was in Spain. He was swallowed whole by a sperm whale. He was inside the, ba- the belly of the whale for 36 hours when his crew, who was still hunting the buffalo, swallowed him, caught the whale, and when they were gutting the whale, found him alive inside the belly of the whale. 36 hours later, with bleached skin. Before those stories, we have this text. We have Jonah. Now, the Bible doesn't say whale, but the word dag, remember, it means creature, great fish, or whale. So we do have historical context in the Bible of this happening, and at least three recorded times in history of people surviving being swallowed by a fish. It's possible. Unlikely, a horrible, scary situation, but it is possible. It happened. It's happened more than once in history, and it's not a desirable fate. But this is where we see Jonah now. Three days, three days in the fish of a whale, Three days of digestion, and Jonah cries out. But I love that that as we see in this story, God was with Jonah as he was running. God was with Jonah on the boat. God was with Jonah in the bottom of the boat. God was with Jonah in the water, and now God is with him in the fish. And finally, Jonah cries out. And, And we learn a lot of things from Jonah's prayer when he cries out. The first is that we see God responds to our cries for help. God responds to our cries for help. Jonah's in some metaphorical hot water here, right? It probably was really cold, but stomach acid could have made it hot in there. But, it's, you know, it's, it's a tough spot, a spot you don't normally find yourself in. It's like the days in Washington where we have 110-degree weather. It's rare, but I remember my first 100, you know, I think last year it got up to 105, 106. It was up there, and I remember people saying, what do we do? And I was like, we called this Tuesday in California in the summer. We've got this. We'll be okay. But it's, it's rare, right? You don't, it's an unusual spot to be in, and it's a spot you don't like to be in. But something I know about spots that happen in our lives, when something happens and we don't like it, it's a tough spot, it's a tough thing, it's a circumstance that's shaping us, it can do one of two things to us. This circumstance can either make us bitter or it can make us better. It can make you bitter or it can make you better. The difference in those two words is one letter, but it's a totally different response to your situation. Think of it this way. The the same boiling water that will harden an egg, that same boiling water will soften a potato. Same situation, two different reactions to what's getting put into it, right? So so the difference there is our response. When when something happens in your life, when you get put into the boiling water, this hot situation, is it going to harden you or is it going to soften you? Is it going to make you or is it going to break you? Will it make you bitter or will it make you better? And notice this, this... this word in Jonah chapter 2, that some translations will have, it starts off with the word then. Then, after three days and three nights, he prays. What is up with that? Then, after three days and three nights, for me, I would be praying when I saw the fish coming. I'd be praying when I saw the fish open its mouth. I'd be praying as I'm getting swallowed by the fish. The only thing that would stop me from praying would be the screams of sheer terror I had as it was all happening, right? But Jonah takes three days. This is a stubborn man in the, ba- in the, the belly of this fish. Now, this guy, 
in all of his rebellion and stubbornness, he was refusing to acknowledge that he was even alive right now, right? He's refusing to acknowledge that he's not drowned because this fish actually was sent to save him. He would have drowned had God not sent the fish, and he's still not even acknowledging that. He doesn't talk to God for three whole days. I can't imagine what he smelled like, what he looked like. I mean, just anything at the end of this, right? But, but when you start thinking about this, why did it take him three days? I suppose for us, we may not be literally in the belly of a fish, but how long sometimes does it take for us to turn to God when we know that we need to turn to him? When something happens, we're like, God, I, I'm rebelling. I'm on the run. I've gone too far. I'm in too deep. How long does it take us sometimes before we say, God, I've got to turn to you? God, God, I do need your help. Sometimes it can take longer than three days. It can take people years sometimes before they realize, I've got to get back to God. I've got to shift my life. I've got to get things in. Sometimes we think we've gone too far. We've gone too deep. There's no way he'd listen to me now because I have been so far removed that he won't listen. Why bother? I am a lost cause. I've put myself here. I've got to get myself out of it. I know I've thought that so many times in different situations in life. I, I, made, I made this bed. Now I've got to sleep in it, right? I've done this. But God's there the whole time. We don't have to wait a, a ridiculous long time before we turn to him. Sometimes we can live under this subtle supposition that, that God will only hear you if you're a good person. God will only listen to you if you're doing things right. You know what? I, I can only pray because I'm on the right track right now. I've got things right, so now I can talk to him. And in those times where we're rebelling, we think there's no point. I'm not doing good. He, it's going to fall on deaf ears. God's just, it's going to be a busy signal. The phone is off the hook. So, the phones used to be hooked onto things, kids. And when you picked it up, you'd hear a dial tone or a busy signal. It's, it's crazy technology, right? But, um, or or there's, the call would be dropped, all right? It's a better term for you. I'm going to call God, but the call is dropped. There's no signal. We can think that sometimes. We can think none of us would ever have a chance because he doesn't care. But the truth is we are all in sin, and we all have to call on Jesus, and he wants to come and save. He wants to come and be here every single time. If he wasn't listening, we would never have a chance because we all have fallen short. We've all messed up. In verse 2, it says, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Jonah is about to experience an incredible act of grace, an incredible act of mercy and kindness, and he's going to see that God is slow to anger but quick to respond because he's compassionate, and he's at work in us, and he was at work in Jonah in these moments too. When we go through pain and problems, I, I think pain and problems have a wonderful capacity to push, up, push us towards a pursuing God. And ultimately, we see this with Jonah. After three days, he realizes this pain and suffering is now pushing him back to God. And that was the whole point of this anyways. That was the point of the storm. That was the point of the fish for God to bring him back to him. We see Jonah doing something now he hasn't done in a long time because of his pain and suffering. He finally calls out to God. He, he finally says, God, I'm here. But what Jonah's thinking in this prayer is we can see that Jonah thinks God is disappointed in him. J Jonah thinks that, God is, that he's ticked God off, that God is done with him, but we see the exact opposite. We see God say, I'm here. I've always been here, and I still want you to do what I've called you to do. That has never changed. Often for us, I think it, it can take us getting lost in our own storm to realize this moment, to realize that God loves us and he's there the whole time. It can be it can literally take getting slapped by the seaweed of your own problems, like Jonah was literally getting slapped by who knows what else that fish swallowed, for him to realize, i got to come to my senses. I've got to come back. 
Another story that paints this picture perfect, as we've talked about before, is a prodigal son. You know, this, this son who, who says, he goes to his dad and says, Dad, I want, all your, I want everything that's promised to me. Basically, I wish you were dead. Give it all to me now. And he goes and he squanders it. But what happens when he comes back? Jesus gives us this amazing picture of the father running out to the city, out to meet his son before his son ever got home. Jesus is saying, your heavenly father's the same. God's the same way for everybody here. When you decide, oh God, I gotta turn and come back to you, if you look, you'll see he's already sprinting towards you. He's already there. The same father is there and he loves you. When we humbly cry out for help, he hears it. He responds. So understand this, as Jonah prays, God pardons. As Jonah prays, God pardons. Guys, when, when we pray, when we decide, I've been running for so long that my pain is not pushing me back towards God, you don't have to worry about God pointing that finger of condemnation down on you. What you have to do is understand God's got those arms of grace and he'll wrap you up and say, you're forgiven. Let's go forward. The second thing I learned from this is that God is active in our discipline and in our rescue. He's active in our discipline and in our rescue. Many, many people see God as this distant being off, just kind of scoping out what's going on in the world down below, uninvolved, just kind of he'll step in when needed, a, a remote, impersonal power. But when you grow an understanding of God, you see these attributes that he has. One is that he's omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. He knows absolutely everything. Nothing you say or do is going to catch him off guard. He knows it. We see that he's omnipresent. That means he is everywhere. As Jonah now has learned the hard way, God was everywhere. And so he was there everywhere then, he's everywhere today. No matter where you are in life, no matter where you go, he's there. And then God is omnipotent, all-powerful. He's got all the power. And we can begin to see he is much bigger than we can really fathom. And this story paints a powerful picture where we see all these attributes coming into play in the life of this one man, where we see God taking a very personal and invested interest in the life of Jonah. And, and, he, and not just Jonah, but the lives of all those who come to him through this story. We see a heavenly father who is like a great parent, right? He is fully engaged in these two critical areas of his children. One, our discipline. God is engaged in our discipline. In Jonah 2.3, it says, you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas. Jonah's, Jonah's acknowledging this. God is disciplining him. It wasn't just the sailors that threw him in. God had a, hand to, a part to play in making sure all signs pointed to Jonah he was getting thrown over into the water. God had a hand in the discipline. He let Jonah go down into Joppa. He let Jonah go down to the boat. He let Jonah go down into the water and then eventually down into the belly of the fish, a deep place. Scripture says Sheol, which translates into the place of the grave. Jonah literally felt like he was hot, cramped, in the dark. Basically, he was saying, I feel like I'm in hell. It doesn't get worse than where I am now. But just like God is, has a hand and part to play in our discipline, he has a hand and part to play in our rescue. In Jonah 2.6, we see Jonah say, Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. We see Jonah, God let Jonah go. God let him fall so he could see his true need. He let Jonah run and at the end face his own plans. Also, God could welcome him home. He had a part to play in the letting him go and the bringing him back. We see God's hand of discipline can be hard to, a hard concept for people who maybe we talked about, people who haven't ever really received discipline. It can be hard to understand. Um, or you can see it as a loving, appropriate discipline we hear about. Maybe you find it hard to understand because growing up in your life, all you ever received was excessive, excruciating, harsh consequences. Harsh discipline. 
and you recoil at the thought. When, when the word discipline comes up, you, you literally have a tremble inside because you're like, oh, this is going to be bad. I understand that some people have been or were abused as kids. I understand sometimes that, that, that there are spouses in here maybe that have, have dealt with abusive relationships with another spouse. I, I understand that. So, so when the word consequence comes, it can, it, can ring a, a, it can ring a really bad bell in your memory. But we need to understand when it comes to God's discipline, he is a loving disciplinarian. He doesn't do things to punish. He doesn't do things to hurt. He does it to bring you back to him. And he does it in the most loving way possible. Listen, the, the heart of the Father God when it comes to discipline is in Hebrews chapter 12. It says this, Or have you forgotten how good parents treat children and God regards you as his children? My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline, but don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that the, it's the child he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces he also corrects. God is educating you. He's treating you as dear children. This trouble you're in isn't punishment. It's training, the normal experience of children. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That's a beautiful picture of what God does, right? It, it's a loving discipline to correct and bring you on, and then there's a, a harvest afterwards because of the lessons that we've learned. Again, why do we discipline our children? To love them, to shape them, to guide them. A preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon, said this, God is too kind to be cruel. He is too wise to be mistaken. When you cannot trace his hand, you can always trust his heart, the heart of the Father. We learn from Jonah's prayer that, that God is attentive to our prayer and, and he, for, for our help, and he will be involved with discipline and the rescue. The third thing we see is that, that God responds to a repentant heart. This is the man who finally, after three days, repents, right? And the word repent is also another one of those words that can conjure up kind of mixed feelings about things that you've experienced in, in your walk with God, or, or maybe you've, the only experience you've ever had with repent is a guilt, fire, and brimstone kind of thought with it, right? Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about seeing people that, you know, the, the Turner Burn preachers, the Turner Burn sign carriers, you know, go to Jesus or go to hell, repent or you're going to burn. And the thing is, when we see those, the word repent is what often stands out, and we start having this negative connotation with the word repent. When in all reality, it was never meant to be a scary word. It was meant to be a restoring word. An important word used by John the Baptist, actually, Matthew 3, 2, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you think what John the Baptist was doing, he was preparing people for Jesus, the one who was going to come and show the ultimate love, not the ultimate punishment. So when John is saying repent, it is a loving, this is what we do because we're preparing our hearts for the coming of Jesus. The word repent in Greek is metaneo. Meta actually means after, and neo means to think. So when repent means thinking after something. You're thinking after you did something. And then when you think about it, you literally turn around and go do the opposite. You get your head straight, so to speak, which, will, which then leads to a changed life. And, and this is what happens to, during Jonah's ultimate timeout, right? He is reflecting on his disobedience, so he's thinking about things. And then in his prayer, we actually see him saying, God, this is what I'm going to do now. And he puts action behind his prayer. It's not just words or the thoughts. He literally says what he is going to go do, the action steps he'll take. In Jonah 2, verses 7 and 9, he says this, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. We see Jonah thinking about it. He says, here's, here's my thoughts. Here's the action. 
This is Jonah repenting from what he had done and recognizing what God's going to do and what God wants to do through him, ultimately through Nineveh. I think for us, when, it's when we take that, when we recognize our need for God and we choose to step out of our independence and look to him, it creates a new opportunity for that second chance, that new opportunity for God to say, here's how I can work in and through you. But we take that step towards God and we see that he's there. <clears throat> Max Lucado said this, there are a if there are a thousand steps between us and God, he will take all but one, leaves that final one for you because the choice is yours. The question then is, is there an area in your life that needs to change? Is there something in life where we say, this is what I've been running on. This is, this is why I feel like I need that time out now because I've been resisting God, resisting his promptings. I've just been holding out. And now I'm going through some, some self-inflicted difficult times and I need now some self-reflection. I need this time out to say, God, how can I think about what I'm doing and how can I now take this step towards you? It's a small step and God always responds to that activity of reaching up to him by letting us know that he's already holding us. And lastly, know that God is always at work. This is a theme we see throughout Jonah. God is always at work, and we see it again in, in verse 10 here. Jonah gets through his prayer, has no idea what God, what's, what's coming up next. He's just glad, finally, to still be able to be in the presence of God. And then after his amen, this whale gets the urge to regurge. It's got that stomach ache, and it deposits Jonah so gracefully, Right? As graceful as a fish puking you up can on the beach. Jonah 2.10 says, So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited him, Jonah, onto dry land. If you've ever thrown up, you know there's nothing graceful about it. <laughs> but that's what happens to Jonah, right? But this story shows us clearly it is never too late to start over. It is never too late to get that second chance. Never too late to say, all right, I may have messed up. I may have done something wrong, but I am going for it now, God. I want to be with you, and I want to do what you've said. And God says, let's go. The story shows us clearly it's never too late. Failure never has to be final. Never. God has the final answer, not our failures. And possibly some here feeling like, uh, there may be some here feeling like that we've made the mistakes, and frankly, it seems like we're going nowhere, right? We're, we're in a dark place surrounded by seaweed, the metaphorical seaweed in our lives. We don't know what's happening. It doesn't seem to be working out. No matter what we do, we cannot get out of this. But wait, when we feel like it's not working out, when, when we don't see how it's working out, we feel like we're stuck in the deep end, remember, even the whale was going God's direction when Jonah was stuck in it. God is at work all the way around. Jonah ended up in the fish of this, the belly of this fish. But, but I love that when, when the fish regurgitated Jonah, where did it puke him up on? The shores of Assyria, where he needed to go. The fish, even though Jonah went into the fish and this was a symbol of his consequence, it was still bringing him where he needed to go. In the midst of our disobedience, God can use circumstance to still guide you where he needs you to go. And when we acknowledge that, we say, all right, God, I'm going back and say, look, we're already on our way. He's been working the whole time. We just have to look and see it and acknowledge that when we call out to God, our circumstance can be working for what he's called us to in the first place. <clears throat> it's crucial to have this understanding and know that God isn't out to get us. He's out to grace us. He's not out to get you. He is out to grace you. Now, this will help us manage our life even when we've bundled it up or, or bombed out with our choices it can take us down some difficult roads sometimes, some unforeseen twists and turns as we'll continue to see with Jonah when we get into chapter three. But we can see that the father is not out to get you. He's always out to grace you and give you another chance. 
I have a, um, a spiritual father in my life that I actually got to hang out with a couple weeks ago when he was up in Washington, and I, I worked for him for many, many years in California. And over the course of working for him at, the, uh, at Creekside for over 13 years, needless to say, I had my fair share of mess-ups. I know, shocking, right? But I messed up. There were times when I was the children's pastor, I definitely messed up. There were times as the associate pastor, I messed up. There were times as a youth pastor, I messed up. There were times over the course of employment there that I really messed up. And I remember there were times where there were consequences for what I had done. But what I love about what Pastor Terry has done with me is over the years, it was never over. There was more chances. There was forgiveness. There was redemption. There were times where I thought I had done things so bad that I was done. And there was a time where I even stepped away and was like, I've just got to step out from this position because I'm I am messing up and things are not working with you and me. This is not okay right now. I, I got to remove myself. And he reached out to me a little while later and said, I want you to come back. And when I came back, it spurred on probably what was probably the five or six greatest years of my ministry there at Creekside. He gave me another chance. And I learned that, that when, we had, when I had grown in my relationship with him, we had talked about the phrase, God's not done with you yet. God's not done with you yet. We have opportunities always to get on God's boat. Know that no matter what situation you put yourself in or what situation the world has thrown at you today, God's not done with you yet. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you know what? God's not done with you yet. God will never be done with you as long as you are here and willing and able to talk to him. I'd like to invite the worship team up as we come to a close this morning. Today, uh, Maybe you're running from God. Maybe there's something that he's called you to do that, that you actually are running from, and now you've found yourself in this metaphorical or maybe literal timeout where you're, you're forced to stop and evaluate and think, what are my next steps? What am I going to do? Maybe it's uh, being the father or mother God called you to be. Maybe you feel inadequate or incapable or just, or just selfish. Turn around. Turn around and look at God. Look up and know that he has a big call for you. And you can start right now. You can start today. If God has you in a fix, think of that phrase. If you took a picture of it and it was up there, God has a fix for you. Quit trying to fix it yourself and know that God will fix it when you turn to him. He will fix you and he will fix the problem. Would you all stand with me? Thank God. Thank God that we have a loving God who loves us so much we can't outrun him. We can't get away, and no matter how hard we try, he's always right there to lovingly bring us back to him. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are so good. God, I thank you that, that you love us so much and that no matter what happens in life, we can't outrun you. God, we can't get away from you. You're always there. You always want to give us that chance, and God, you've taken all the steps. If we turn around and step towards you, we can understand that you're right there holding us and bringing us to you every single time. Thank you, God. We love you. And everybody said, amen. amen.